This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How a Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what do you need to do to get there? To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guest today is Rob Waite. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Henry. So Rob has uh, been an international senior executive at Fortune 500 companies, a CEO of a large privately held company, a CEO of successful private equity-backed entity that was recognized by Inc. Magazines as one of America's fastest growing privately held companies. He's had equity positions in at least a couple of these companies, and we'll chat about that. Uh, he's also has served on numerous corporate boards, and he's lived and worked in Europe, Latin America, and Canada. Uh, his business leadership experiences include turnarounds, startups, rapid growth enterprises, integrations of acquisitions, formations and operations of international joint ventures, complex change initiatives, and elite executive recruitment. So he's pretty much done it all in the area of business uh, from small to large organizations. Uh, he cur currently serves as managing director with the firm Allen Associates, and um, they're a retained senior executive search and leadership advisory firm where his practice serves major corporate accounts and private equity firms. And his latest book is No Magic Bullets, Hard Things Great Executives and Entrepreneurs Know and Do. And so we're going to chat about that book, uh, some of the key components of that book, rather, in this episode. Rob's going to share his background, how he got to where he is today. And like I said, we'll dive into some of the key takeaways from that book, especially for small business owners like ourselves. Uh, Rob lives in the Louisville, Kentucky area. And so once again, Rob Waite, welcome to the show. Thanks again, Henry. So what uh, took you to Louisville? I'm curious. Well, actually, I was relocated here for an opportunity to run a company as CEO. Uh, it was an entity that was about $350 million in revenue, more or less, at that time, um, with about almost 1,000 employees, and I uh, thought it would be a great opportunity. It turned out to be. And uh, we fell in love with the area. Uh, didn't think we would fall in love with the area, but just loved it and decided this is where we would finally sink down roots. That's fantastic. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally from Philadelphia. My wife as well. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's a beautiful. I have not spent a lot of time there, but I've spent some time there in my business career, and it's, it is a beautiful area. Yeah. Uh, you've also lived in various parts of the world. Um, I'm curious. Uh, not just from a personal perspective, from a doing business perspective, what are some of the key differences you saw in living in other countries? 
Well, uh, each region of the world kind of has their own ways of uh, doing things. In America, for example, uh, we view things as you get down to business first and uh, the fun stuff second. Um, in Latin America, uh, it was the opposite. Uh, people wanted to get to know you as a person and know about your family and know what you're interested in uh, actually before discussing business. And that was very important to them. Uh, so you have to understand a little bit of the cultural nuances of how somebody's going to want to uh, get to know you and your business and the order that takes place, et cetera, in order to be successful. Yeah, no, that's that's a big one. I found that as well having worked overseas. I found that to be the case as well in the Middle East where it's much yep. more about what's done in conversation during the coffee break or whatever that, that that's most important. And that's hard for us as Americans to, all right, let's sit down and get to it, right? But they, they are that's getting right. to it, but just in a different way. That's exactly right. And in parts of uh, Asia, particularly in Japan, um, you know, basically they'll never say no to you directly. You right. have to understand when yes is yes and when yes means no. And uh, so some of those things can be very important in business. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Great <clears throat> challenges. All right. So you studied business administration in college. What did you think yep. you wanted to do career wise or life wise back then? Boy, back then, I had literally no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew that I needed to get a college degree, and um, I figured I'd get some kind of job when I got out of school, and um, just didn't have much of a plan, unfortunately. Um, however, when I graduated, it was during um, one of the last big recessions, and uh, I was motivated by our uh, university's um, uh, placement counselor who was telling the graduating class that uh, the big Fortune 500 company in our area, who was Armstrong World Industries, uh, really didn't want us state college kids at this point. They were going up market and that we should think about um, working retail. Interesting. It, yeah. And, you know, it, it actually ignited the fire of ambition in me for the very first time. And I decided I was going to get myself a job at Armstrong. And that's exactly what I did. Now, was that in sales and marketing or what, what was those? What were the early positions that you had? The, yeah, the early position was in sales. I um, landed a role as a salesperson in their building products group. And um, that really kind of launched my career because I really enjoyed sales and also saw it as an opportunity to um, travel the world, get new experiences, do new things. And, and that's how it uh, all started a role for me. Yeah. My early career included sales as well. And I've, I have found that it's one of those things that has benefited me tremendously as an entrepreneur. What are your thoughts on that? You've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur yourself. How much of that have you brought forward as a skill that has helped you even till today? Oh, it's tremendous because nothing happens in a company until first somebody sells something. There's nothing to make. There's nothing to invoice. There's nothing to account for until somebody actually makes a sale. So it's really the first thing that has to happen in any business. And um, it's also obviously the uh, generator of, um, you know, some of the lifeblood in the business from from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. Great way to put it. 
So I saw in your, I think it was on your LinkedIn profile, robweight.com. It was just a one-year stint. What, what was that about? Well, actually, that was pretty interesting. That's what led to my investment in Drexel Metals. Um, I had um, launched off into management consulting, parlaying off everything I'd learned as a, an executive living around the world. And um, I was connected with the founder of Drexel Metals. Uh, he was looking to retire and um, wanted me to help him get the business ready for sale and to take it out to um, the private equity markets. Well, make the, the very long story short, after a year of tireless work, um, I did obtain for him an incredibly good offer from a, a top-notch private equity firm. And right as we were getting to the point of signing the letter of intent, uh, the founder said, I can't do this. And uh, <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean you can't do this? And uh, he says, I don't want to sell it to a, a financial investor. I want to sell it to you. And I was kind of taken back and shocked, but thought about it and decided, even though I was in my mid 40s with kids in college and all that, I was going to jump in the entrepreneurial pool with both feet and I was either going to swim or drown. Amazing. Um, so much to take away from there. But one of the things I want to ask you about as you were back when you were preparing it for sale. A lot of small business owners obviously find themselves trying to do that or should anyway. What are some of the takeaways that you can boil down to a much smaller business that a business owner should always think about in preparing their business for sale? That's a great question. And I would say that there's really um, three key things. First is the business really needs to be able to have a well-articulated strategic value proposition. What is it about this business that is worth somebody investing money from a uh, market perspective? Uh, the second is to have very clean financials that are um, audited. Uh, even though a, a smaller business might not have to meet some of the regulatory hurdles, et cetera, for their books. Uh, it's really a good idea to have a great set of books that's nice and clean. And the third is to be able to show um, a potential investor what the future could look like based upon the platform that they have already built so that they can envision how they can take that business forward. And when you combine those three, it's a great way for um, an entrepreneur to to gain a premium for their business. Yeah, yeah, great advice there. On the auditing of the financials, you know, most of us as small business owners don't take that expense and it's perfectly acceptable. But I think one of the things we can take away from it is to have a good clean set of books in the interpretation of at least your accountant or CPA, ideally your CPA, and that often suffices. But I think the key yes. takeaway there is that you have clean books. Exactly. And there's a lot that goes into that we won't dive into here, but that I definitely have seen that in having sold a couple businesses as a key takeaway. Um, all right, we'll come back to, so are you still invested in Drexel or did you divest yourself of that? Tell us about that. Yeah, after... Um Oh, I guess a couple of years into the business, um, we were looking for additional growth capital and uh, at that point brought in a, another private equity firm to uh, partner with us. And um, I was with the business for three years additional at that point in time. 
Um, however, as we got into late 2012, um, I had been struggling for a few years with uh, a chronic illness called sarcoidosis and got to the point where I, I just couldn't really handle the heavy travel schedule that was required of me and chatted with my private equity partners who were awesome to work with. And um, I was able to make my exit at that point in time. And that's what led, uh, and we can talk about that at an appropriate juncture, to me landing with Allen Associates as managing director, which has been an incredible experience because it's taken everything that I've learned throughout 35 years uh, whether it's been with large companies, small companies, private equity-backed entities, or my own entrepreneurial experience, and parlay that together to help our clients land uh, some of the best people that are out available in the marketplace. Yeah. And I got to think, uh, Bob, uh, Rob, excuse me, that that's because of your knowledge. You have a pretty good ability to, I'm sure, ascertain what a business needs and then find that right match for them in an executive. Well, yes. And I think what it comes down to is having been on the other side of the desk right. is I can get um, into the mind of our clients from a strategic standpoint. What is it they're trying to accomplish as a company and then be able to translate that into the specific executive position they're looking to fill. And we find that we get into very deep strategic conversations with our clients actually prior to talking about the specifics that they need from an executive. And um, I think that helps them feel a lot of confidence that we're going to be able to bring them somebody that's going to be able to help them execute on their strategy, which is what it's all about. Yeah. And I got to think, Rob, that you enjoy uh, the win-win in it, that you're helping to place someone that you believe in and then you know they're going to help the company that you place them with. You know what? You're absolutely right on that. Um, you know, I always enjoyed um, helping the businesses that I ran or worked in throughout my career, and I could see how um, I impacted those. In the executive recruiting business, we work with so many different companies that uh, you get that almost on a scale of times 100. Uh, and when you place a chief marketing officer for a Fortune 500 company and you see television commercials and advertisements and magazines where they're repositioning the company, uh, you, you feel some pride there as though you've had a hand in making that ultimately happen. Yeah. So I'm a SCORE mentor, and so that caught my eye. I think you had a maybe a short stint with SCORE, but tell me about that. Yeah, I uh, sat on the National Board of Directors and um, enjoyed that time greatly. I was recruited to that board by um, a gentleman who had been chairman, and um, I enjoyed Ken Yancey uh, immensely, who's CEO of SCORE, and interviewed him as part of my book. Um, knowing the depth of talent and experience that he uh, had. Um, my desire to stay on the board was certainly there, but um, that fell in line with the same period of time um, that I needed to get my health uh, under control before I could continue to move on with other things. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've been with, uh, I've been a mentor now for, I guess, a couple of years and, and enjoy the organization tremendously. That's great. Uh, yeah. All right, so the book, again, is called No Magic Bullets, Hard Things Great Executives and Entrepreneurs Know and Do. Why did you decide to write this book? 
Well, I'll tell you, um, I had written a book previously called The Lost Art of General Management, and that was back in 2004, and it still sells well today. Um, and I had a couple of publishers that uh, were chasing me to, to write another book over the years, and my view on that was I didn't want to write another book unless I had something of value to offer readers. And um, I actually got into a debate with a publisher um, when he was trying to tell me that um, you just repackage stuff <laughs> and put new titles on it and get it out there. And uh, I said that in, in the, not these exact words, that that's a, a wretched concept. But I ended up, uh, what I did say to him turned out to be the title of my book. I said, you know, people have to understand there's no magic bullets in business. And what you're trying to do is create the impression that if you just do this one thing and follow this uh, one guideline, uh, you're going to have all this incredible success. Um, and then you just change tail and run in another direction three months later with the next book you put out there. That's just not reality. And uh, that stuck with me and it kind of um, was an itch I needed to scratch because I started observing um, entrepreneurs I was counseling, um, some uh, executives that I was uh, mentoring that did fall prey to um, the magic bullet theory of the month. And in some ways uh, it was worse than that in that the information they were reading was was really great stuff that was well thought out, but they would take that one concept from the last Harvard Business Review, for example, and then try to shift their whole organization around that, and then shift back again the next month with the next thing they read, et cetera. And I was explaining to people that, you know, business is about doing a whole lot of things well, and that really doing that zigging and zagging and or looking for a magic bullet is not going to be the solution. And I began to think more and more about that and um, started talking with people in my professional uh, network and um, actually started reaching out to executives that um, I thought I might want to interview for a future book and uh, was talking to them about these sort of things and all of that came together to the point where I thought, wow, actually I, I do now have something to say and I have a book to write. So that's what led to it. Yeah, fantastic. I love how the title can apply in so many ways. And, yes. and you touched on it because for small business owners, again, it's a combination of all the things that we do. And there is no get rich quick scheme that I've found yet, certainly not to starting and running a business. And then furthermore, despite our best efforts, our business might fail, right? So yeah. there's definitely no no formula that works. Just because it works for me is not necessarily going to work for you, I think is the point you're making as well. Um, so, so I love that. But the, the other thing I want to make sure I'm following is it sounds like what you've observed is that sometimes in business people can go off on this new trend or, or fad or a new radical different approach. And I think if I'm hearing right, what you're saying is incremental improvements and a lot of it is staying the course file, following some fundamental truths about managing a business is really the way to go. Am I getting that right? You're getting that absolutely right. Um, in the book, I do walk through at the beginning some examples of um, magic bullet theories that people have fallen prey to. Um, but then the question begs to be asked, well, then 
what does it take to succeed in business? And as I interviewed CEOs of large corporations and entrepreneurs um, and startup executives, uh, you know, people from all walks of business, it became um, very obvious that there were seven things they seem to have in common. And I didn't start out writing the book thinking that it was going to be these seven things. It became um, more and more apparent as uh, I amalgamated the interviews that I had conducted with these executives. That's great stuff. So I'd like to dive into a few or a couple of these seven things. You touched on one already, which is the strategic value proposition. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to maybe explain that a little bit better, especially for, from a small business owner's perspective, because I suspect if I ask 10 people, including me, you might get 10 different <laughs> definitions as to what yeah. the heck that means. Is it, is it my, my unique value proposition? Is it my unique selling proposition? There's so many different terms, and I don't know if they mean the same thing or if they mean what you're talking about here. Yeah, well, I, you're exactly right. And um, the reason that I use the term strategic value proposition is it does encompass um, all of the aspects that you hear about from your elevator pitch to your sales proposition to your unique value proposition, et cetera. Um, but in its most elemental form, a strategic value proposition really defines and documents a business's answer to three questions. And those three questions are, who are we today? Where are we going? And how are we going to get there? And when a business can answer those seemingly three simple questions, it's amazing the magic that can happen. And that's what I base what I call the strategic value proposition around. Yeah, I love that. I love that, the specifics of that. And then that, of course, amongst the many things that it drives, the most obvious is when I'm making a decision about my business, whether it's adding a product or taking a different direction or investing in A or B, this overriding strategy should be my constant roadmap. Exactly, because that's the way you also avoid the zigging and the zagging or the strategy of the quarter. Um, Yeah, sometimes there's times where market intelligence comes back that will have you shift or tweak your strategy, but that's different than, you know, abandoning how you were doing business and then doing something completely different. So uh, that's one part of it. And I think the other part, Henry, is being able to detail Um, that last question, how are we going to get there, uh, becomes the execution plan. And it gives you then that uh, roadmap of the things that you really need to be doing uh, to be able to achieve your objectives. And it it creates that pressure so you don't wander off the path, uh, or at least don't wander off the path too far. Now, that last part, the how, I have found, and curious as to your thoughts on, can be a bit more fluid or shorter term because things change, technologies emerge, markets change on us. And so the how, what's the, the kind of the horizon for that typically in your experience? Well, you know, that's a great one. And I think what uh, uh, the way, the, the best way for an entrepreneur to break down um, this creation of a strategic value proposition in, in terms of that how would be to have Um, aspirational goals that may be out there four, five, six years, 
And then you can have some um, midterm goals, which are going to be in that three to four years. Um, but then within that one to three years, that's a tight enough horizon in most industries that there will likely not be a significant shift from a, a technological standpoint, et cetera, unless you're in a technology business per se, that um, would change so greatly that you would uh, need to really modify your strategy significantly. So um, you know, I think that it helps because when you have those aspirational goals, it, that also helps keep you pointed in the direction that you really want your company to go in and then bring it all the way down to the specific. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then you mentioned it's been your experience that when you have this clearly defined, your strategic value proposition, mm -hmm. it helps with selling the business. Absolutely, because if um, an investor or a strategic buyer even um, is looking to acquire your company and they're trying to figure out, well, what is it that these guys really do and why is it that their customers are buying from them, um, that's not good for the buyer to be trying to figure out. That's something that the seller of a business uh, should be articulating and then proving. Um, and that's what helps drive an extra um, you know, premium for your business. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, that makes sense. This is Henry Lopez, co-host of the How of Business podcast. Do you want to be your own boss and start your own business? Do you aspire to be an entrepreneur and enjoy the freedom of time and location? So what's holding you back from getting started? How do you know if you're actually ready to be your own boss? I would like to invite you to join me for an online program that will help you clearly understand if you are in fact ready. And if you're not quite ready, what you need to do to get there. Perhaps you need help understanding and overcoming your fears. Maybe you're not entirely sure about what it really takes to be ready, willing, and able to become your own boss. My online program is about helping you take the first critical steps towards realizing your dreams of entrepreneurship. I will take you step-by-step step through a process that will help you determine if you are in fact ready to be your own boss and specifically identify what you need to do next. To find out more about my online program, please visit thehowofbusiness.com for more information. All right, the other one of the seven that I'd like to chat about is get the right things done. Now, I get it at a large uh, in a large organization and certainly at a high level that of course relates to what we just talked about with our plan and our value proposition. I'd like to get your perspective on it though at a more personal and individual level. As a small business owner, we're often by ourselves. Maybe we mm -hmm. have a partner, but I'm wondering what your perspective is at that level and, it, and you know, you've seen it up to the executive level of of prioritizing, delegating, and getting the right things done. I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, obviously there's um, been a lot of people that have uh, offered products in, such as apps, and uh, there was a book written called um, you know, Getting Things Done, and you hear a lot about getting things done. I added what I think was actually more important getting the right things done because activity doesn't necessarily equal accomplishment. So that that's one point that I think is very important. It's very easy to get active, 
um, and think that you're doing a lot of great things, but they might not be the right things. And that turns back to, um, again, your your strategy. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And if you know that, um, it, for example, in one case, if you're trying to accomplish the launching of a new product that you've invented, that you better keep the, the activities on your day-to-day -day basis oriented to commercialization of that product. And um, so when things are coming your way, you need to take the time to consider, am I spending the right amount of time doing the right things to be able to achieve that objective I've set for myself? And it's easy to get um, lost in the activity of the day-to-day -day demands um, of urgent uh, requests of um, the ever incessant dinging email and text messages, et cetera, uh, that can get you derailed in that uh, fashion. So it's very important, even if you're working on your own or whether you're working with a large team, to have a solid yet simple um, system, task management system that keeps you on course and uh, keeps you from you know, procrastinating or getting lost doing other things that aren't going to be the most effective, et cetera. Yeah. You personally, Rob, how do you avoid those issues? Do you block out time? How, how, I know obviously you alluded to a task management system, but how do you do it such that you can get work done in an, on an in, uninterrupted basis? Yeah, it's a, that's probably the biggest challenge of them all. And uh, what I do very simply is I actually print out my calendar for the day, take a pencil, and I write in and block out where and when or, or when I'm going to be doing the specific activities that I know I got to get done that day that are oriented to getting um, the strategic value proposition implemented. And I, of course, have to be realistic and I need to block out time uh, to respond to email and return voicemail. And there's always going to be the unexpected interruption. And um, so I followed pretty closely how my days were going against what I had penciled out so that I could continue to be realistic of what I was putting down there. And if I found I had too many things crowding out doing the important, I would have to really try to make a shift in what was taking place, whether that was telling people that work for me very politely that when my door shut, it shut. That's because I got to be focused on um, a specific activity. When it's open, that's the time you can come in for the uh, impromptu meeting. Um, the other is uh, I turned off the um, dinger on my email system because anytime I would ever hear my phone or my computer go ding, I, I, I was like possessed. I had to look at that email. And uh, that would just take up too much time. Um, and when I found if I would just block out uh, you know, 20 minutes uh, every 90 minutes to look at email, that was rapid enough uh, for clients and for employees, but it would keep me from just this constant stop, start, stop, start. And I think that stop, start, stop, start of emails and text messages is probably the biggest killer of productivity for anybody. Oh, could, could not agree with you more, but it's but it's easier said than done, but fantastic. Yes. Thanks for sharing those very specific tips 
on how you manage that because it is a big challenge and and just turning off those alerts is a is a big one we're just addicted to that yeah. dopamine uh, hit that we get from <laughs> oh my gosh and and there are very few of us i would challenge you i'm certainly do not fall into a category where my required response time on an email is immediate it, it's very yes. rare right uh, great, great takeaways there. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the last thing I'll, I'll comment on that is I very specifically um, over the years came up with a uh, email management policy that I instituted starting with Drexel Metals. That's 10 very specific steps that dramatically cut down on email traffic that we generated ourselves. And I write about that in the book because it has been so effective and I've shared it with so many people um, and I was very surprised at how effective it was. So um, that's something that I'll uh, post up on my website uh, for your listeners. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and we'll have a link to that on the show notes page of this episode. All right, the other one that I thought I'd like to chat a little bit more about of the seven was number seven, pivot from me to we. And again, I'd like to chat about it from the perspective of that uh, small business owner or, or solopreneur, because we are challenged with that. Certainly, most of us, when we first start a small business, we have to do it all. And so we're very inwardly focused, very much about me, me, me. I'm the only one right. that can do this. I'm the only one that can do it well enough. So chat about it from that perspective, that mindset of going from me to we. Yeah, you know, it's um, was an interesting one. Uh, as I interviewed um, the executives, I did find that among entrepreneurs, this was probably the biggest aha moment for them when they uh, came to that realization. And what I mean by that is you can be um, – a great boss, let's say your business has grown, you got five employees and that you, you treat them respectfully and um, you want to have a, a, a nice place for them to work, etc. cetera. Uh, that isn't necessarily that pivot from me to we. If what is going through your mind constantly is I need to get this done in my business, I need to earn this amount of money, I need to have um, these people do these things for me, and it's purely viewed through what it is you want. And what happens as a result is uh, both the people within your business as well as your customers begin to realize that as nice as you may be and as polite as you may be, it's a, you're looking at it as all about you, and that be, gets to be seen as very selfish. And it creates um, some tension where employees or customers just aren't willing to um, extend themselves completely to you at that point uh, as a result of that because you're looking at them as a transaction. Mm. And uh, the people that understand that business is really about giving somebody something that they want for a value that exceeds the money that they pay for it is a huge key in understanding. And then the second part to that is without the other people that you work with, whether it's suppliers or employees or customers, et cetera, service firms, 
you aren't going to achieve your objectives. And they all have their own desires, ambitions, objectives, etc. So if you can begin to align what it is those other people are striving to accomplish for themselves as well, um, they start to really become uh, not just loyal, but willing to work extremely hard to help you out, uh, get what you're looking for as well. And um, we've just seen that become a force multiplier in a very large way as uh, people make that that pivot in their mind from, um, it isn't just me, it is about we, all of us. Yeah, great, great perspective. Thanks for explaining that. I think it kind of segues then, and you touched on it at the beginning, and I know you've written about this, but talk to us about maintaining that work and life balance, and especially for entrepreneurs, as we've already chatted about, we're so busy, we've got so much that we're responsible for. So what have been some of the tips that you've either either applied or that you've seen other successful entrepreneurs apply to strike that better balance if there is such a thing? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it's a never-ending um, balance to, to keep that uh, in, in play. Uh, but what I think the first thing is something very practical. And most entrepreneurs, you know, do have some sort of uh, task management system like what we talked about earlier, even if it's as simple as just writing things down on a piece of paper. Um, But even if they're doing the uh, writing it down on a piece of paper, uh, not many people will put on their task list time that they want to spend with their children that day or something that they want to do with their spouse or a friend that they want to set up to have um, you know lunch with they haven't seen in a while etc what they do is they put their work totally first and if there is any leftover time then they'll fit in all the other stuff so if you schedule time for the other aspects of your life then you actually do make time for them and there will be more time for that. So that's the first thing I would suggest. And then the second is um, a matter of um, having that sense of um, shutting things off in your own mind. It's so easy when you're in that entrepreneurial mode, particularly at startup time, to just be so consumed by it Um, And particularly for entrepreneurs that work out of their home where you you almost can't escape it. You're always drawn into your office. Uh, You have to find ways to set those boundaries in your life and uh, be firm with them. Even if you break out in a cold sweat the first couple of times (laughs) that, uh, you know, you don't check email on a Sunday, for example. So that's a hard one. So so not checking email is one example. How else have you manage to exercise that? Do you purposely catch yourself and then tell yourself to think about something else? Is it about hobbies? Is it about spending time with other people? How, how do you do that? Well, it, I, I think it goes back to the first thing that I um, talked about is um, scheduling the time. And the reason I, I say that is because if I know I am set to do something on a Saturday, for example, then I'm going to be focused on that. And I'm not going to be thinking about, um, should I be checking email? Should I be trying to get that one other thing done, et cetera? Um, you know, somewhat of a task-oriented person. So I view that as, as my task is to 
be doing that thing with um, you know family member or a friend, um, and that makes a big difference at least uh, for me. Yeah. Um, and then the other is if you really do sweat over um, wondering about is there an urgent email or an urgent voicemail that could crop up in the um, non-business hour time frame, um, you know what? That's okay. What you can do is just set for yourself one or two times during the day on a weekend that um, – you're going to look to see if there's something there, but you have to have the self-discipline that when you give your email a scan twice on Saturday, that you're scanning it. You're not replying to everything there. The reason for the scan is to make sure that there's nothing urgent that requires a response over the weekend. Um, but if you start replying to every email that's in there, then you're back into the old habit of working all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, Great, great takeaways there. I have found that when I do take those breaks, however small they might be, that I actually come back with more energy and more ability to solve problems because I've given myself that mental break. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, another way to put that, um, I think, Henry, is you have to give yourself permission to take that time off from, yeah. the, from the work. Once you give yourself the permission, you, then you don't feel guilty about it. Yeah, yeah, well said. Rob, what do you love most about what you do today? Um, what I love most about what I do today is uh, the fact that what I do, what our entire firm does, is helps companies become great companies. And what great companies do then is employ more people, uh, create more opportunity, and um, make things better. So uh, it's something that I know we all take pride in it, Allen Associates, and um, it's what I enjoy the most is helping a great company become greater. Fantastic. All right, so we've talked about the book. Again, it's called No Magic Bullets, Hard Things Great Executives and Entrepreneurs Know and Do. And so I usually ask for a book recommendation, but I believe there's a resource you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Yeah, um, I think that the, one of the most important resources that um, someone can have, regardless of where they may be currently in their um, career or entrepreneurial pursuits, is to curate your professional relationships. Do everything you can to build the proper network. And um, I'm kind of down on the term network. I like to call it curating professional relationships because networking kind of has become more of a one-way thought event rather than a two-way thought event. But that aside, um, what has probably helped me more in my career than anything else are the people that I've developed my professional relationships with. So the sooner you do that, the better. And it's never too late to create a an incredible network that will recommend books to you or recommend podcasts to you that'll have good advice or they know the right people that can help you out with an issue. Um, it's the number one thing that has helped drive my career. A great takeaway. I, I could not agree with you more. It has been critical to me in my career and in my entrepreneurial career. I was very poor at it early on when I was younger, but I'd like to ask you to give me an example to this important point you're making of curating. What's an example of that? 
Well, what I mean by curating is um, when you're thinking about the areas of your um, professional uh, skill sets, capabilities, experience, um, where there's going to be areas that are you're not as good at, you don't have as much experience in, or a skill that you need to develop, then you're being purposeful about the people you're seeking out to form a professional relationship with because it will either help you fill a gap or build a strength even stronger. Just randomly making connections is uh, not going to lead to uh, those types of results. Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. All right. We'll wrap it up with the last couple of questions and First one is any last parting piece of advice or thought or something I didn't ask about, especially related to the book that you'd like to leave with our listeners. Um, yeah, the one of the things that um, I felt impassioned about in writing this particular book, uh, and I mentioned throughout the book, is ha fire up your desire for continuous learning no matter where you are in your career. Um, I have met far too many people who say they have 20 years experience, but it's really five years multiplied times four. Hmm. And uh, it, I see so many executives get to a point of success or experience and think they've gotten far enough and just stop learning. And those that are always curious and always learning and always reading and always picking the brains of the people in their professional network, et cetera, um, just seem to be that much more successful. Yeah, love that. So, Rob, where would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and your business? Well, where they can uh, go are two places. Um, they can learn more about the book and myself um, very simply at robwaite.com, W-A-I-T-E. And regarding Allen Associates, it's very simply uh, www.allen, A-L-L-E-N, dot associates. And uh, it's as simple as that. And that's where they can learn more about us. Great. And if you did not catch that, we'll have all of those links on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. All right. Well, this has been great, Rob. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and insights. Um, I have not read the book, but I'm definitely going to. There's some great takeaways there that I think apply to all different levels, including small business owners like myself. So thanks for taking the time and for sharing with us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Henry. This is Henry Lopez, and you've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by levantebusinessgroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.